0: I've always written, I mean, that sounds like a cliché, but there was never a question of what I would do for a living. I did not know at the time how hard it is to make money, and I wish someone had alerted me to that. But I always knew that I wanted to write, and that was just my profession from the beginning. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds
1: of writers. Should you serialize your book or your novel or your memoir? And if so, how? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today channel. There's never been a better time to be a writer. We have so many different ways of finding readers and getting our work in front of them. You can self-publish a book, which is fantastic because you don't have to rely on gatekeepers. But let's face it. Self publishing can take a little bit of time, and you've got to invest in a book cover, and you've also got to now spend money on advertising and so on. But what if there's a different way? Enter serialization. So, famous authors from Charles Dickens to Agatha Christie have all serialized their works, and the good news is it's easier than ever to do it today. Perhaps the best place to serialize your book is on Substack. I've interviewed a number of top Substack publication owners over the past few years. But this week's interview is a good one. It's with Sarah Fay, who is a creative writing professor at Northwestern in the United States. She's also an author at HarperCollins, and she runs not one, but two different Substack publications. One of them teaches authors and writers how to serialise their books, novels or memoirs, and the other is a serialisation of her novel. So in this week's interview, she goes into her exact process for serialisation, and she explains the key things you must do before you serialize your book or your work. Now, I have experimented with serialization in the past. In fact, I even serialized extracts from my book I can't believe I'm a dad on my personal website briancollins.com. However, I do need to rethink what way to approach serialization in the future. And Sarah gave me a number of takeaways and thinking points that I'm going to use. I may even return to Substack with my personal writing. That said, whatever stage your current writing project is at, serialization is a great way of practicing your work in public and also connecting with your readers. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's interview with Sarah Faye. If you do, please consider leaving a short review in the iTunes Store because those reviews do help more writers find the Become a Writer Today podcast. You can even go one step further and share the show with another writer or somebody who's interested in the process of serialization. Any help you can offer to grow their podcast is greatly appreciated. My guest today is Sarah Faye. She's an award-winning author, a creative writing teacher, and a keynote speaker. And her work has appeared on numerous publications, including NPR, Oprah, Forbes, and many more. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: I'm excited to talk to you about your course, Serialize, which is for fiction and nonfiction authors. A big advocate in the principle that you teach Before we cover that, how did you get into writing?
0: I've always written. I mean, that sounds like a cliche, but there was never a question of what I would do for a living. I did not know at the time how hard it is to make money, and I wish someone had alerted me to that. But I always knew that I wanted to write, and that was just my profession from the beginning. So it was a slow, I shouldn't say it was a slow entry, but... I got into it in ways that I now teach my students to get into it. So the easiest way to get into writing is to start writing book reviews and interviewing authors. And that's what I did. And I ended up really excelling at that and interviewing authors for the Paris Review, which in the United States is really the pinnacle of interviewing. And then that allowed me to kind of move toward having the kind of bylines and the kind of clips that could get me into other magazines. But I was always writing fiction. I don't think that's my zone of genius yet, but (laughs) supposedly fiction comes to writers very late in life. So I'm excited (laughs) to age and hopefully it'll work. So nonfiction has always been my love and writing personal essays. And then I wrote my memoir, which was really incredible to write. And it's called Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. And it's about my 25-year journey in the mental health system. And I wrote it very quickly and landed a powerhouse agent who I love right away. So I wrote it in five months, got an agent, and we sold it in a month. And that was incredible. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so all those... Could, could you give listeners a timeline so they can understand how you went from interviewing authors to landing a big book deal?
0: Yeah. So I interviewed authors and wrote book reviews in my 20s. And so I was living in New York City, very expensive. And I was teaching writing in the New York City public schools in really rough neighborhoods. So always supplementing my writing with teaching And I love teaching, so that has always been kind of the second passion that I have. And then in my 30s, I got an MFA, so a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, which many writers in the U.S. do. And that, as many writers will tell you, used to get you a teaching job at a university, so a tenure-track job that can be very comfortable financially. And when I came out of my MFA program in my 30s, that was ending. So basically there became a glut in the market of people with MFAs who wanted to teach. So I went and I got a PhD in literature, which most writers don't do. So that was six years of my life. I missed the entire Obama administration (laughs) because I was in the stacks in the library when people used to still go to libraries And I was doing kind of really uh, rarefied studies of literature and writing my dissertation. And that I thought would definitely get me a tenure track job. So when I graduated from my PhD program, there was also a glut in the market (laughs) of PhDs. So I ended up Basically, piecing together, you know, adjunct teaching here and there. And then that put pressure on my writing. So I knew that I had to be publishing more. And by that point, I was pretty much only writing essays, personal essays. Then I started my memoir. So I had been writing novels all along. They are in a drawer where they should stay. (laughs) And so that was how I got there. So by the time I did write my novel or my uh, memoir that quickly, I had been writing for 20 years, so I had all of that practice and education behind me.
1: That's quite a lot of practice. Just to go back to the Paris Review, because I used to read the Paris Review, and we studied some of their personal essays when I was taking some creative writing courses. Did you interview any famous authors? Because they pretty much have the who's who of the best authors of all time. I did. It was an incredible
0: experience. They sent me to Japan, and I interviewed the Nobel laureate, Kenzaburo Oe. And that was amazing. They sent me to Spain and I got to interview Javier Marías, who is like a rock star in Spain, <laughs> where you know authors don't get that kind of fame here. I interviewed Marilyn Robinson, um, the novelist who wrote Housekeeping and also the Gilead trilogy. I interviewed Kay Ryan, um, the poet and Jack Gilbert, who is one of my favorite poets. And I think I don't know if you had this experience, but Really, the Paris Review is the greatest writing education. Those interviews are just incredible. And I just read every single one and and really learned so much about writing from those interviews.
1: Yeah, I still reference some interviews. Recommend listeners check it out. So you you did a PhD in creative writing. Not many writers take it that far. Is that something aspiring writers need? Do they need that level of education to write? So... I actually did a PhD in literature, which is different. So that's
0: the kind of hardcore literature people go into that. So that's six years. It's a big commitment. And that is really writing about literature. The MFA in creative writing, which is, you know, most common here, most people stop there. There is a PhD in creative writing now, and it's kind of looked at as silly. You don't need a PhD in creative writing, you have to write. Like, that's how you become a better writer. So that is how most people view it. There's nothing wrong with getting a PhD in creative writing, especially if you get funding and it can support you for three years, which is how long, or two years, how long they last. But it's absolutely not necessary.
1: Yeah, I looked at a few MFA programs in Ireland at one point. I felt like what they do is give you a group to give your writing to, to get feedback from, and some space write as part of a structured program. Well, that's something you can probably do anyway without going further in your education.
0: Exactly. And that is what drew me to start teaching also on Substack. Now I'm lucky because I teach at one of the most prestigious universities in the country and I love teaching in the classroom. But what Substack gives... An opportunity for. And this is something the short story writer George Saunders has done. And he was really, I took his lead. (laughs) So he won the Booker Prize and is one of our, the U.S.'s preeminent short story writers. And he teaches, he's tenured, meaning, you know, he's sort of the highest level of professor at Syracuse. And he started teaching on Substack. And I thought, why don't I do that? So he teaches the short story. And I knew that I wanted to take my teaching out of the classroom and be able to give it to more people. I love teaching, I'm really good at it, and I know that I inspire people to write. So why limit it to a few thousand people when I could give it to tens of thousands of people who maybe can't afford an MFA, who maybe don't have, you know, the time to give to that. And I agree, I don't think it's necessary anymore. The world has changed so much and it's such an exciting time to be a writer.
1: Substack is a fantastic platform, but when you were considering it, did you ever look at, for example, a traditional blog or website or YouTube or some other means of delivering your teachings?
0: I didn't only because I fell in love with Substack. I started writing on it about a year and a half ago and I just loved it. I loved being able to build my email list. I loved having this community of people reading my work. I loved being able to you know, really reach out in a way that felt like I had a magazine, right? And so I had, you know, I didn't, I don't even think of it as a newsletter. It's a way to offer my readers so much more than that. So I was writing on it and I still have a Substack called Sarah Faye and I'm actually serializing my new book on there, um, my new memoir, and it's called Cured and it's my story of recovery from mental illness. So that's Sarah Faye and that's separate. And I chose to do that with the guidance of my agent and my editor at
1: HarperCollins. So they are also... They they were okay with you. They didn't mind you serializing on Substack I as well. They actually encouraged
0: it. And what's so interesting is I was having a conversation with my editor the other day, and she was telling me that publishers are nervous. They're losing writers to Substack. Why would you wait two years for a book to come out when you can publish it now? and really have more agency over your income. I was really lucky in that I got a very generous advance for my book, Pathological, but I wanted to see what can happen with serializing a memoir because I'm teaching it now. So I wanna be able to guide writers and you know sort of make the mistakes for them <laughs> so they don't have to do it. And again, I wanna be teaching not just writers how to serialize, but how to become better writers by serializing. So it's much more than just like emailing, you know, a bunch of chapters. That's not what serializing has ever been throughout the history of serialization in literature.
1: It's quite easy to set up a publication on Substack, but often the challenge is discovery, that is finding email subscribers and readers. So how did you go about growing your newsletter in the early days? I really started...
0: I didn't really, in earnest, start publicity for my newsletter. I wanted it to be a sandbox at first, and I was just publishing personal essays. And it was, you know, the kind of guiding principle, which is really important to have on Substack, something that defines you. It was called start with a question. And I would always just start with a question about our mental and emotional lives. And then I would write an essay. It was kind of like a prompt for myself And I liked seeing, you know, the open rate for certain emails, which posts were guiding people. And a lot of people are doing that with Substack and using it more for, you know, figuring out their own work. Um, And that's something I really encourage people to do in terms of serialization as well. You can set Substack up to be private. You can have it be just a workshop space, which I think is so cool. So some writers want to do that. But in terms of publicity, I've really done it more for serialize. And one thing that's tricky about Substack is newsletters have to offer a service. And when you're an author and you're writing fiction or creative nonfiction, so novels or memoirs, it's not as clear what that service is, right? What are you giving people in return for their time, in return for their money, And so I'm, you know, what I'm doing is helping writers write books. I mean, what we do, our service as writers is to not just entertain people, which is a big part of it, but to make them think. And sometimes, you know, novels can create social change. There are so many ways to approach it. And so I'm trying to help writers really see what their gifts are and what they offer readers. That's really exceptional. But then I'm also doing the nuts and bolts. So how does SEO work? How do you capitalize on that? How do you create relationships with other writers on Substack? Because those recommendations are really important and can really, really help. And what do you do? I mean, in the sense of some writers do like to offer, you know, they're serializing their novels. So publishing a chapter once a week, I call they aren't chapters, they're installments, but publishing an installment once a week. And then something else that they want to give writers once a week. I'm not crazy about that model, but that's a possibility. So you're offering kind of tips or, you know, insights once a week and then giving an installment of your novel once a week.
1: Did you ever consider having one Substack for your book and for what you're teaching on Serialized, or was it always your choice to go with two separate Substack newsletters?
0: Yeah, I don't recommend that. It's too confusing for people. And, you know, you really want to devote. I mean, what I talk about is, you know, you really want to serve readers, not get them to do what you want, which is read your book. So you want to be very respectful of their time. You want to be respectful of how much you're emailing them. Our inboxes are full. So when are you going to approach your readers is really important to think about. So I didn't want to be, you know, sort of pummeling people with, you know, emails three times a week. So I published twice on Serialize, and then I'm publishing once on Seraphay. That's three emails a week. That's a lot. Now, I have a lot of people that are on, you know, on my email list for both, and they don't unsubscribe. So those are the people who want to be there for both and want to see it. So I never thought of that because I think of serialization as a form. It is, if we're going to have a blockbuster (laughs) serialization, which hasn't happened yet, and I'm determined to make it happen, meaning a kind of best-selling serialization of a novel... If we're going to do that, we have to treat it as a form and we have to learn the craft of that form. You know, there's a long history of serialized novels and we have to learn from them.
1: That's something you touch on on your About page. You described some examples. I wasn't familiar that these authors at all serialized. Uh, So you mentioned Charles Dickens, Upton, Sinclair, Truman Capote, Agatha Christie, and many more. Yeah. And what I want to do, and this is
0: what we do in creative writing programs. This is why people want to go to an MFA because you're taught how to read, you know, sort of the masters and learn from them. And that's the best thing you can give a writer because that's lifelong. So what I do that's different is, so for instance, I just posted today and it's about cliffhangers and learning from Agatha Christie's the serialization of And Then There Were None to look at how cliffhangers work. And what's really fascinating, and this is why serializers have to think in terms of installments and not chapters. Her, and then there were none, has 16 chapters and an epilogue. But the serialization of it was only seven issues. So the editor changed the book, which is so cool to look at. So I went into the archives and I show readers um, the serialization, the photos in the Saturday Evening Post, and look at how editors knew how to keep readers reading from one issue to the next. It's very different. It's a totally different experience for the reader because with a book, we commit, right? We say in some ways, yes, I'm going to read you. But in a serialization, there's no commitment. So you really have to know how to keep readers reading. And novelists aren't that great at it, naturally. Some are, you know, you have the Stephen Kings or you have Dan Brown, you know, more popular writers. But what I'm teaching people to do is, okay, how are you going to attract readers? And then how are you going to keep them reading from one post to the next? How are you also going to draw readers in when you're on installment number five, right? So the the novel is well underway. But it was really cool to look at where the editor of the Saturday Evening Post chose to divide up and then there were none. And what's Wonderful is he was a much better writer <laughs> than Agatha Christie.
1: <laughs> so was on um, then there and known was the installment version different to the final version that appeared as a book?
0: Yeah, exactly. So but what's interesting is actually the book was written first. So serializers can do two different there are two different methods of serializing your novel. And one is to do what everyone always cites Charles Dickens, but he was hardly the only person to do this but he did map out his novels. And I actually studied the serialization as a form in my doctoral program. And so I give my subscribers a way to map their serial novel and it's based on Charles Dickens's method. So he would map it out, not quite an outline because it was more flexible than that. And then he would write one week to the next And what's really great is when readership would flag, he'd just
1: change the plot. (laughs) So he was really reacting. Ah, Nice. (laughs) In a way, he's using like what Substack has is the analytics and data to change the stories.
0: (laughs) Totally. And so, but the other way to do it, which has happened often as well, which is the book's written, right? And it's written as a book. It's thought of as a book with chapters, but that's very different than serializing. So then it would go to the editor, right? And it would go to the magazine and the editor would divide it up differently to suit the serialized form. And so Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None is very different in the book than in the Saturday Evening Post. And that's what I talk about in today's post, just trying to look at specifically how do writers get better at cliffhangers. I mean those are tricky to do and do well and but we can learn from actually the editor of the Saturday Evening Post more so than the Queen of Mystery <laughs> because he did a better job with cliffhangers.
1: So it sounds like if I were to serialize I do not need to have my entire book finished it's just like I can have a general outline of what way the plot or story is going to go.
0: Yeah, and I don't really what I call it is an an event ladder. You know, it's better to think in terms of events. Outlining can get, it's different, right? So serializing really depends on action and movement. When you write a book, especially if you are writing literary fiction, you can have a character driven novel. You know, if we look at Elizabeth Strout, the American writer, she's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And her Lucy Barton novels, like those are just beautiful, and you immerse yourself and they're just completely quiet, character driven novels. That's not gonna work in a serialization. So, you really, when you are creating that event ladder, you have to think in terms of events. An outline can get you into trouble in that you might choose to introduce a character for a chapter. That's a chapter that can go in the book, an installment. You, things have to happen. Characters have to change. And that's what I teach people.
1: I can see how it work quite well for fiction writers. I work or write a lot of nonfiction. So how could I apply the event ladder to my nonfiction? Do you write narrative nonfiction? That's probably the last long form that I've written. So I wrote a type of memoir about becoming a dad unexpectedly. So how would I serialize something like that apart from putting the chapters out as individual emails, which is what I did with some takeaways at the end.
0: It's the same thing. So the same premises apply, but I have two different courses, like kind of quick courses that I offer on my unserialize. One is Prep Your Novel and one is Prep Your Memoir. So they are slightly different. And what I take you through right now, I'm just addressing narrative nonfiction. So personal essays that have a narrative, so short form, which you could do and collect, right? As a, you know, kind of um, story cycle or essay cycle, but I'm really looking at memoir. And so that follows the same narrative demands or has the same narrative demands as a novel. It's just a true novel. But there are two ways to do that. And there's a great appeal to serializing your memoir instead of publishing it traditionally. And you can serialize your whole memoir and your whole novel. And as I discussed with my, my agent, and my editor, you can then sell it to a major house and you just take it down from Substack no big deal. Like that is an amazing prospect. So you've had this run of not just writing in your room, you know, in the attic, but you've actually been interacting with your readers. You've been building your email list, but back to your question about memoir. So teaching the same kind of things, but how are you going to end a memoir chapter on a cliffhanger, right? How are you going to do that? And that's something I talk about it doesn't work the same way. It's a little more heavy-handed in a memoir because you've got that first person. And so you have to do it a little more gingerly. Like you could have someone, I mean, you know, when we think about cliffhangers, it's named for a Thomas Hardy serialization. It's endemic to serializing. And it's named after, this is kind of literary lore, but supposedly it's named for a chapter in Hardy's novel Where a character literally ends up hanging off a cliff by his hands. So that's a cliffhanger. (laughs) And so (laughs) it's that literal. (laughs) But, you know, it can be physical danger. It can be ending on a question, right, that hasn't been answered yet. Those are all ways of using the cliffhanger, not just in a novel, but in a memoir too. And so it's a little bit different than how we normally think of memoir, which is to kind of Close a chapter in some ways, more so even than a novel. But there's another way to do it. And so Truman Capote's In Cold Blood was serialized. And so when you think about, I mean, that is the first, you know, supposedly true novel. And, but that's a different way of thinking about narrative nonfiction and serializing it. You know, you could do something that is about other people, you know, that is sort of reportage as well, that tells this long story. And you could serialize that, but it'll, you know, the same rules or kind of effective craft tools still apply, which are, you've got to know plot. You have to know narrative arc. You have to know character change. Like those are just absolutely key.
1: Yeah, that's good advice. I actually did serialize my memoir. I'm not on Substack, but you just reminded me that the last chapter went out uh, last week. So I need to consider what to send to readers next. It's on my personal site not become a writer today. So if somebody's doing this on Substack, what do they do when they reach the end of their current memoir or novel? Should they set up a new Substack for a new project or continue with the existing one? Or what's the best way to think about it? I say continue with the existing one.
0: And if you have one, you can launch, you know, if you choose to. So on my site, Sarah Faye, I am serializing Cured my new memoir. And I'm just launching. I mean, I'm not just launching into it. So I have an announcement date. I've set it up. So it's all of 2023 and I'm actually doing different pricing for 2023. And I think that is a way that hasn't been talked about in terms of drawing new readers and keeping readers, which is I'm pricing it at the same price as a hardcover book. So I'm basically saying, you know, join me and you can pay $30 for the year, which is about the equivalent of a hardcover in the United States. And that's very different than asking someone to pay $50, which is what the kind of norm, the annual price on Substack for what is essentially a book. So then what I'll do is at the end of the year, I will announce that I'm going to my next project and I may change the pricing. So that's something that a really amazing kind of flexibility that Substack provides that, to my knowledge, no other platform does, except maybe Patreon.
1: Yeah, well, Ghost was the platform that I use, but yeah, Substack does it very well. So I'm curious, you're lecturing, you have two Substack newsletters, and I'm sure you have some other projects and family commitments as well. So do you find it's a lot to think about serializing or managing two Substack publications rather than one? Because for something like this to work, you need to send out the installments regularly or weekly.
0: Yeah, I have the finished manuscript of Cured, so that's really a lot. I'm still reshaping it every time I post an installment because I wrote it as chapters for a book. And so it does have to change when I'm putting it up on my Substack. But that's very different to have the, you know, the book is done Um And so that's, that allows me to have more time. I'm not just scrambling every week and I don't recommend scrambling every week. I really recommend trying to be at least three to six weeks ahead. So you've just got that cushion in case anything happens, but with serialize, I'm just in love with it. I mean, it's just really been so successful and it's drawing so many writers who see this as an opportunity to improve their craft, to become better writers and get their work out there and perhaps, you know, not just to attract agents, I mean, uh, readers, but attract agents and editors, which is so cool.
1: Do you find many readers visit you through the Substack app organically? Because what I've noticed with a Substack publication I run for a different project is now people are beginning to find publications within the app itself rather than through me promoting it elsewhere or through Twitter or, or, or so on.
0: Yeah, it's been a huge change. I mean, I think that they, I don't know if it was when they changed it, but most recently they changed the SEO structure. So I find so many, I mean, I have an amazing number of people just finding me through Substack. I'm also, I get a lot of people finding me direct, but that's where serializing a novel or memoir is a little bit trickier and you wanna be able to understand SEO and have the keywords in there that will draw readers to your work. So acknowledging, for instance, you know, writing every week, fantasy novel, you know, kind of, you can do that not in the text, but you can have a little blurb on top, you know, when you have, you have a caption asking people to subscribe, you know, subscribe to my fantasy novel and then the title rather than just the title. I mean, those little things can influence SEO and draw people.
1: Have you mapped out your serialized newsletters for the next few weeks or months, or is that something you do on a more short-term basis?
0: No, I'm a professor. Like It's all got to be mapped out for the whole quarter, the whole
1: semester. It's like a curriculum. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, I love it. And the only thing I haven't had happen yet, but I I really want to interview writers and be able to highlight people in the serialized community who are serializing. So we can become aware, again, just promoting them within our community and get people aware of all these people who are writing serialized novels and memoirs. So I want that to really start up in earnest. And then also trying to interview people who have a lot of experience with serialization. So to get insights from others. So it's not just me.
1: I feel like there's a lot more opportunities for writers online today. So the challenge isn't what to do. It's just focusing on one of them to the works. Yeah, exactly.
0: And I mean, I say to my students, my university students, my MFA students all the time, which is, it has never been a better time to be a writer. I wish this had been around when I was just starting, because before you had gatekeepers. So yes, I got in the New York Times. I was lucky, you know, in that respect, in some ways. I mean, I worked really hard, but that was, you know, and getting you know associated with the Paris Review, where I ended up becoming an advisory editor. All of that, there were gatekeepers, and now there aren't any. You don't have to wait for an acceptance. You can just put your work up there. The one thing I do tell people, though, is that it's an amazing opportunity. At the same time, you won't draw readers to your work if you aren't good at your craft. You just won't. I mean, I will read anyone who's good, you know, who's writing is I don't think, you know, again, you don't have to go to an MFA program, but what I'm doing on Serialize is, like I said, making people better writers as they learn to serialize. And I think it's just a great opportunity.
1: Yeah. What better way to to improve them by practicing in public, especially when you start to see people joining your email list, which solves the other problem writers have, which is marketing. A lot of writers don't like marketing. If Substack is automatically sending out your newsletters, then in a way it's taking care of it for you. Uh, So Sarah, where can people go if they want to read your newsletters or your book?
0: So it's serialized.substack.com and I invite everyone (laughs) to visit it. And a lot of the content is free. So I want to be able to be also giving some of my best stuff to people, you know, who just are there, maybe aren't quite as serious yet and are just playing with the idea of serializing. So please do go there and take advantage of all of that. And then I'm sarahfay.org, so www.sarahfay.org, and you can always find me there. And then my personal Substack, where you can find Cured and other, you know, writings that I do personally, is sarahfay.substack.com. And I think, I don't know if I said that, but serialized.substack.com, and I'm sarahfay.org. Okay.
1: Well, I'll put—I'll put, I'll be sure to put the serialized with a Z as well, so US spelling. But I'll, I'll be sure to put the links in the show notes, so listeners can find all of the letters. But I definitely encourage listeners to check it out because it's a fantastic model for writers. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes Store or sharing the show on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening.